Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and and I'm in a different part of the country. I I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're really reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? Hey there, I am Carol Jurgensen Sheets, Carol the coach to most of you, and um, what does that mean? Russell is suffering from self-esteem issues, and he's reenacting his low self-esteem in ways that are getting him in a lot of trouble. What does that mean? Well, if you've listened to the show, you know that sexual addiction either uh, becomes a habit disorder that then, oh, evolves into severe, severe compulsivity, or more than likely there was some sort of trauma or compulsive sexual behavior that occurred early on in your uh, preschool years, school age years, early teens that caused a preoccupation uh, with sex. There was a sexual uh, trauma reenactment, if you will, that could have occurred. There could have been eroticized rage that's playing itself out. Some sort of feeling or trauma that is played over and over and over again in your life. You know, I was just talking with a man Uh, today who said, you know, Carol, whenever something is going really good for me, I look for ways to sabotage it. Oh, I don't consciously do that, but I get so excited that things are going my way that I begin to celebrate in all sorts of unhealthy ways, and then I realize I'm sabotaging my progress. Has that ever happened to you where you sabotaged your progress? Well, Literally, I'm here to help you teach what may be going on in your life, but more importantly, what can you do about it? And you know, each week our show deals with, oh, all sorts of 
sexual addiction types and all sorts of recovery tools and all sorts of areas that I believe can be helpful in taking your life to the next level, both in understanding and in recovery. And tonight is no exception. We have Marie Krebs on, and she is a spiritual director who works with sex addicts and partners who struggle with their higher, higher power. And she wants to talk to you about how to increase your spiritual fitness. She wants you to improve your conscious contact with God or your higher power or your spirit. It matters not what you reference it as being. What matters is understanding how you can't do this on your own and you need something greater than yourself to help restore you to sanity. And we've got her coming on in about 10 minutes. Now, last week I started to read you an email, and it was very interesting because this person, we'll call him Tom, had struggled with sex addiction for many years. And so he wanted to express his appreciation for the show, talked about growing up in a home with an alcoholic father. His mother was a codependent. He had uh, two younger brothers and a younger sister, and he had been emotionally abused and physically abused um, at school from the age of around nine, clear through his junior year in high school by his peers. Okay, so that's kind of some of the trauma we're talking about. Growing up in an alcoholic home is tough. And then, in addition, if you are um, in, a, in a, an environment like school where you get bullied and made fun of, oftentimes you reenact that trauma by going towards something that's going to make you feel better, for the moment, of course, not in the long run, or you're going to act out your anger um, by exploiting others, whether that be prostitutes, children. Um, it can be anything, actually. So this man actually had acted out um, with his wife's niece and had served some time in prison, and when he got out, Although he had begun attending SAA meetings while on bond, he stopped going because he was feeling better. Within about a month, he began acting out with pornography. And then after about nine months, almost a year, he started acting out with other women. And he knew he needed some serious help. So he found a CSAT, you know, that's a certified sexual addiction therapist like myself, and he began attending three SAA groups a week. And he attended group therapy. And his wife started getting some help herself. She found a, uh, a therapist that really seemed to understand partner trauma. They got a lot of support from their congregation, even though he had been disfellowed, sh- shipped twice. And he was building some intimacy with his wife. Now, he did feel the temptations and pressures to act out. And yet, he also felt stronger than ever until about two days ago when he went on to a job and the manager met him and she started flirting and he started flirting and the adrenaline rush he says, was the most intense rush he'd ever felt. Well, at least felt in a long time. 
he actually had the thought, I could give up everything for this feeling, these few moments of pleasure. Now, luckily, he did not enter into any inner circle behavior, nor did he break his non-negotiables with his wife. But he recognized that he had opened the gates for fantasy, and you know fantasy is one type of sex addiction. And so, all right, the reward center's moving. It's moving really fast. It really scared him. It scared him that he was willing to throw it all away. And he said, Carol, how could I be like this? I feel as though my urges at times are uncontrollable, and I'm curious about medication. Also, my question was how to explain my emotional infidelity flirting to my wife. Or, he says, okay, let me talk a little bit about medication. There are several medications that may be helpful in decreasing urges and cravings. You know, a lot of... um, Doctors and psychiatrists think, well, if we give somebody an SSRI like Prozac, um, and I'm, I'm not dogging Prozac, but they think because Prozac can affect sexual orgasm, that that will help somebody with a sexual addiction. It will not. So Lost has been helpful. Lexapro has been helpful. And a drug that is typically given to addicts has been helpful with some sex addicts called naltrexone. And so this is a man who has had a whole lifetime of sexual addiction, and I would encourage him to talk to a CSAT about medication. And then he says, I feel as though my urges at times are uncontrollable. Now, here's what i got to promise you, Tom. Your urges are not uncontrollable. I get that they feel that way. But Patrick Karn says you have to imagine a hand just moving them away, and you have to start contacting your family of choice. you got to start contacting the committee. you got to start calling people in the fellowship, increasing your meetings, doing some reading, doing some praying, doing some meditating. You know, get into some healthy circle behaviors. Um, Volunteer. Do something helpful in the 12-step program. When you feel those urges and cravings, it is a big flag to say, hey, you got to hit the other track stronger. And you will grow from that, and you will appreciate yourself, and you won't be sabotaging yourself. And then his last question is, also my question was how to explain my emotional infidelity, flirting, to my wife, or if I should. Well, Tom, I got a couple of issues. One is that I am so thankful that you did not go into inner circle behaviors, but you can see that flirting, emotional infidelity opens up those floodgates, sometimes as much as actual sexuality. And so I don't want you to minimize that at all. I want you to talk to your sponsor, and I'd like to know what your contract is with your wife. You know, I really believe you're only as sick as your secrets, but that does not mean you have to tell every single person everything. 
So I heard that there were some non-negotiables you had with your wife, and it sounds like you didn't violate those. I would talk with your sponsor, I would talk with your fellowship, and I would talk with your CSAT. I would hear what all of them had to say, and then I would pay attention to your head. What do you think about talking to your wife about this issue? Your heart. What do you feel about talking regarding this situation? And you know what, Tom, I would also say, you know, If you're doing it to make yourself feel better, weigh that with, will this make my wife feel, I don't want to say better. It never feels better to know that your husband was flirting with somebody else. But it's this information she's going to want to know that you're truthful and trustworthy. Or is this information that's going to trigger her further? You've got to decide what your wife wants from you, and you have to abide by that. And if that means talking to her about the hard stuff, that's what you got to do. You know, I got some wives that say, I don't want to know. If he hasn't done inner circle behavior, I don't want to know because I get hit every single time that happens with emotional pain. And then I got women that say just the opposite. I want to know every single detail. Now, I will work with them and say, you know what, that doesn't seem healthy to me. Let's figure out some other ways to develop trust. Maybe that's polygraph tests so that you know he hasn't violated any deal-breaking behaviors. You know, I mean, some of, some of my other options can be pretty intense. Um, so, That's what I have to say. And then last but not least, you said, Tom, I wanted to let you know you are more than welcome to share my experience on the air, just not my my last name, laugh out loud. And if you wanted a guest sex addict who has been through a lot, I would be up for that as well. Thank you again for your incredible work and all of your insights. So, Tom, thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for contributing by asking some hard questions. Trust me. These are not just your questions. They're questions every addict asks. You know, I was working with a man today who came home. He was so upset because people at his work were really um, minimizing women and talking provocatively about them and objectifying them, and he couldn't take it. He is now in recovery, and he could not take it. And he came home and he told his wife, and he he thought she'd be really proud of him. He thought that she would, you know, say thank you for sharing. And instead, she basically said, you selfish SOB, why did you tell me that? that? That reminds me of the triggers that I felt that you were experiencing your entire life at that job. And you've just confirmed it. And I am sick. I'm sick to my stomach that you did that. So as you can see, each case is individualized and it's different. And this is hard stuff, and I know it is. But I want you to know that when you talk to your sponsor, your fellowship, and your CSAT, your certified sexual addictions therapist, and you get all of their opinions, you may feel confused because they may differ with you. But using your head, your heart, and then your gut, your knowing, your intuition, what you know to be true, you'll actually do, in most cases, the right thing for you and your wife. And that's what counts. 
you might go to my YouTube uh, channel, Sex Help with Carol the Coach. I talk about some tools that you can use to talk to your wife and how you can especially listen to her and reassure her and encourage her. And for all my sex addicts that aren't in partnership with anybody, hey, there's plenty of information on there for you too. Or you can go to my Carol the Coach YouTube channel, which talks about healthy ways of dealing with depression and anxiety and how you can take your life to the next level when you've been uh, working so hard on yourself, whether you're in recovery or you're not. So that's just a little bit of information from Carol the Coach. And always, I just so appreciate your feedback and um, your questions. So tonight... We are going to be talking to Marie Krebs, and she is a spiritual director who works with sex addicts and partners. She works with a lot of partners who struggle with their higher power. And she wants to teach you how to increase your spiritual fitness program. And she knows that in 12-step work, it can be tough because lots and lots of people struggle with spirituality. So we're going to be talking about improving your conscious contact with God or your higher power. Um, And Marie, welcome to the show. Hi, Carol. Thanks for having me on. Yes, absolutely. You know, spirituality is such a fascinating topic anyway. And so many people who have had trauma in their lives really struggle with that concept. So can you share with our listening audience a little bit about you and what made you decide to create this niche of uh, spiritual directorship? Well, um, again, thank you for having me on. Um, Hello from Dallas, Texas. Uh, We are finally beginning to experience a little bit of fall here, cooler temperatures. Oh, yeah. I became a spiritual director. I went through a three-year training program. There's courses across, well, all over, nationally and internationally. There's an organization. I think it would be helpful for your listeners because I don't know where. I'm assuming they're all over. But there's mm-hmm. an organization. They are all over the world. All over the world. There is an organization called Spiritual Directors International, SDI for short. And it is a... Uh, uh, clearinghouse, if you will, of uh, certified spiritual directors um, um, from a variety of different um, disciplines, orientations, um, uh, faith traditions, uh, non-denominational um, uh, folk. And um, so that was something that I, because of my own personal uh, story and healing, I pursued um, finding out more about spiritual direction from selfishly for myself um, based on some experiences that I had had. And then once I got into the training program, I realized it was something that I wanted to um, pursue and, um, and continuing on in the program. And like I said, my, my program was a three-year uh, immersion program in spiritual direction. And um, I, I'm one of these, uh, I'm a therapist as well, too, a clinician here in Dallas, and, and uh, I'm one of these uh, folks that has always been somewhat puzzled by the idea of how a therapist will often refer p- 
people who are new into recovery, whether, you know, um, it's the um, addict, the offending partner, or uh, the partner, to a 12-step fellowship for uh, help and recovery. And the part that for me that was puzzling is the part that for folks that um, have absolutely no trouble whatsoever connecting with higher power, God of their understanding, which, of course, as we all know, is one of the cornerstones of 12-step recovery, it, it's a great and wonderful um, um, program to refer folks to for support. And I'm a, a firm believer in the power and the help uh, of um, 12-step fellowships. But what I started noticing is that it's not for everybody. And mm-hmm. and even for people who do have resonance with 12-step communities and, and do find the beneficial and helpful, um, there are still some people for a variety of reasons. Maybe, maybe they, their own spiritual journey included, you know, some kind of um, um, – you know, uh, religious abuse or some kind of uh, uh, trauma surrounding their faith tradition. Maybe they were raised with a very punitive, rigid um, religiosity, uh, one that that, um, didn't really allow for um, uh, mistakes, if you will. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so asking people to go in and, and develop a new relationship, you know, with their higher power, it's, it can be very difficult for people. And, of course, as, a, as a, someone who's both clinically trained but then also trained as a spiritual director, I'm, I'm concerned about uh, our clinical community um, when somebody comes back and they report back that, you know, I'm having difficulty with this or, you know, that or the other. And um, people, clinicians, who most who go to grad school programs, um, spirituality is not even discussed in their training program. And so oftentimes counselors are either left with um, kind of they they don't know, um, and so they're not um, helpful in terms of making referrals, or if they they are uh, very clear in their own spiritual identity, um, projecting that onto their clients, which for some it may be perfectly um, appropriate and and, um, there there may be some resonance there for the – the client, but I can. I also am aware of because they end up across the, you know, in my office across from me, um, where they uh, a previous counselor has projected their own faith tradition or their own belief system onto their client, leaving them feeling like, well, um, traumatized because that's not what they they it doesn't resonate with them, and so. You know, this has become kind of part of my work and, and, and what I – a focus, if you will, a focus of my work. And uh, so I, I – for people that are interested in um, spiritual direction, let me, let me also make this disclaimer, that spiritual direction and counseling are two different animals altogether. And so if I'm working with somebody who comes in initially for counseling but – as a result of, you know, events or things or things that have come up um, is requesting spiritual direction. Um, I am very clear about setting real clear boundaries around this is counseling, this is spiritual direction, because they are two very different um, modalities, if you will. Spiritual direction is not really a treatment. 
per se, you know, as counseling would be considered a treatment. Um, and yet I offer these suggestions to people um, um, if they have an interest in increasing their conscious contact with God, the God of their understanding. Okay, so now let me ask you, um, obviously you're real aware of the fact that lots of clients do have trouble with 12-step fellowship. Um, and what do you do to help make that process easier or what do you do to provide alternatives to that? Great question, Carol. So for someone who's never entered the rooms of a 12-step fellowship, I, I begin by kind of giving them an orientation of kind of what you can expect when you walk in the room, you know, um, in terms of the, the people that are going to be there, whether it's three or four or 50, depending on the meeting that they go to. Um, I give them an idea of what the format is like in terms of, you know, um, that, you know, there is no actual leadership. Everyone is a uh, trusted servant. You may have like a meeting leader, but that person is actually a trusted servant. I try to help orient them towards some of the language because it is, it's, it's truly, it is when you first go into a 12 step fellowship and, um, it's like um, it's very confusing and disorienting. Um, you know, I explained that the no crosstalk, which for uh, some people is very difficult for them um, because they hear something and they, oh, well, you know, they immediately they, they feel that, you know, the the um, the impulse to respond to something like, oh, that's exactly what my, you know, and explaining all of that to them. Um, also explaining this idea of. Uh, and I do. I, I say this whether it's a twelve-step fellowship or whether it is um, a, a, a film or um, some, uh, a book or something else that I want them to read. Um, that expression, "Take what fits and leave the rest." You know, mm-hmm. so many times, you know, um, people will go in and and you know, it's immediately, you know, because by our very nature, we're human beings. We're going to judge, right? Oh, that's not me. Ooh, my situation's not that bad. Or, oh wow, mine's really bad, right? And they, they find themselves right. um, judging a lot. And, and I part of what we ask folks to do is to try to suspend judgment. Um, I, there's this wonderful acronym that I, I like a lot, and I think that, you know, if people will, uh, and I say, you know, you kind of you have to get spiritually fit before you even go into a meeting um, in order to practice the principle of being honest, open, and willing. And I use that acronym of HOW. How to do a 12-step meeting is to go in and be honest, be open, and be willing to receive what you hear there. Um, so that's how I try to get them oriented. I, I will sometimes, um, I, I'm thinking back to the woman one time that I uh, was referring to a meeting, and, and I asked her, she you know, had some anxiety about going in a room full of strangers. You know, and just the idea of being in a room full of strangers. And I said to her, I said, um, do you ever go out to eat? And she's like, well, of course I do. And I said, well, are you aware that when you go out to eat and you go into a building, you're in a room full of strangers? And well, that's she was great. Like, oh. You really reframed that for her so that she didn't feel it was so foreign. And, and can I ask you, because obviously you do a lot of work with partners of sex addicts. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Can you share with the listening audience the different types of 12-step groups available to them, what they're called and what they're like? What's the difference? 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me start by saying I can share the names of some of these fellowships. The challenge that I find before I even go there, though, is is depending on the community that you live in, you may or may not have these fellowships available, which is so frustrating. But the good news is, the good news is um, many fellowships nowadays you can find online meetings. So even though you can't actually, you know, drive to a facility or a building or something where they actually have in-person live meetings, uh, many of these you can find um, online. Um, yeah, very is, good point. And, and you can do that by just Googling online exactly. COSA groups or non groups. Group. Tell them a uh-huh. little bit about the differences and the similarities. Right. So um, COSA, uh, it, the, the thing I used to just kind of orient people to who I am, I used to work at a um, the largest recovery center here in the Southwest, and, and we had – Oh, close to 80 different 12-step uh, 12, 12 fellowships every week. Only two of those were um, Alcoholics Anonymous. Most people are like, good night. You had over 70 other meetings every week. And many of those were COSA groups. And um, so COSA, um, d- depending on who you ask, and again, I think it depends on the community that you're in, Carol, because they are very different meetings. I, where I used to work here in Dallas, the way I identified the meeting that we had where I, the facility where I used to work was, I call it a COSA partners group because it was, it, at one time, I think in the early days when it first formed um, and they, the, uh, most of the women in there identified as co-sex addicts, uh, hence the name COSA. Okay, an acronym for mm-hmm. that. That's how. And yet, yeah, we don't use that addict. term anymore, do we, Marie? No, ma'am. Not no, co-addicts. Ma'am. Not co-addicts, but but COSA uh-huh. originally, when it first formed, that was the kind of like the Al-Anon is to AA. COSA was uh, to the uh, SA, the you know, uh, Sex Addicts Anonymous, SAA groups. Um, but what I would what I what I would say today, we don't use that term anymore. And so when you hear the term COSA, it doesn't necessarily mean that there may. I will say this as a cautionary note to people that you may find there may be some partners in those fellowships that have been in the fellowship for say ten, fifteen, twenty years when those early COSA meetings first started that that is how they still identify themselves. Um, and that is something that they, um, that's, and, 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 you know, I, it is not for me to say, you know, how someone's uh, recovery is supposed to um, uh, look like. I think that, you know, it's, it's up for them to decide. But for most people going in today, COSA meetings can be a helpful uh, meeting to go for support for others. Um, you, again, what I said before about take what fits and leave the rest. Um, you may hear some things in the meeting that really resonate with you. You may hear some things and think, that is absolutely not my story. What I encourage people, and I'll go into talking a bit to, uh, about Esmon here in just a minute, but um, what I would encourage people to do, and when I do you know, uh, refer people to go to uh, COSA groups um, or other 12-step fellowships, I ask them to go to at least five meetings. 
Um, if they're in a, commu- a large, large community that has different meetings at different times, go to the different meetings at different times. Um, you, you may see uh, people in there one time only and never see them again, and you may see a certain person that comes to every meeting. You just never know. And so the, it's a very dynamic um, uh, attendance. You know, again, like I said, sometimes you may go, there may be, you know, two or three people, and there may be 20 or 30, depending on the meeting that you go to. Um, and they follow the traditional, you know, um, 12 step, you know, format of going through the steps and, you know, in COSI, you work with a, a, a sponsor, you know, you find an identified sponsor. Um, oftentimes, um, it, there's some difficulty depending, you know, again, depending on the fellowship, um, with, uh, finding a, a sponsor. And the idea in the, in the truest sense of the word is when you're going to a meeting and you're looking to find a sponsor, you want to identify somebody in the meeting whose story of their uh, strength and hope, their experience may be similar, but, but it's their strength and their hope that they share that that's something that you want. That's what you're looking for. Um, sometimes, you know, after uh, meetings, you know, they will say, anyone here willing to be a sponsor, you know, and they raise their hand, and you just kind of go to the person, you know, closest to you. And that, you know, that can work wonderfully and beautifully for some people. Uh, Sometimes people may say, I'll be your sponsor, but only a temporary sponsor, and it's nothing personal. It's just that they, uh, the time that it takes to sponsor someone through a 12-step program it's a time commitment, and, and that's that other person's time that they're committing to you. And some people, um, if they're going to sponsor, they only want to work with people who are committed to actually working the steps and, and doing the work. Um, so that's, that's kind of how I orient them, and it's a little bit about uh, COSA. Uh, S-Anon is, uh, again, a similar like Al-Anon is to uh, AA, S-Anon is to um, uh, SAA or SA, and it, it, it's like just like the Al-Anon, very similar in terms of the principles of Al-Anon. Um, and there's no um, no coatic language. There's none of the you know the uh, uh, language around um, um, uh, codependency and you know all, all of the um, I, I, things that I would think of as more pejorative type language that you would probably hear more so in COSA meetings than you would in SNN. And then, you know, depending again on the, the community that you're in, there are uh, some infidelity support groups. Um, sometimes they're offered at different churches. Uh, sometimes they're offered just in, um, I've, I've known therapists that open up their office to have um, support groups, you know, partner support groups. Um, uh, for partners, and those can be very helpful as well. You know, the whole idea is it it, it feels it feels as if in the beginning, at least, that um, you, it's you're uh, very uh, alone. And you know, so the the point in a therapist encouraging a partner to get into a twelve step fellowship or into some kind of a group really is to get them as much support as possible and to help minimize that that feeling of being alone you know someone else has walked through an experience similar to yours not exactly but similar and um, they have um, experience and strength and hope that they can share with you and and that's why we refer to 12-step fellowships well absolutely and and i find that 
there are certainly people that, like you said, are very uncomfortable thinking about going to a group. Groups just happen to make them feel nervous, self-conscious, not anonymous, that kind of thing. And then there are people that struggle with a higher power concept in 12-step groups. So what do you say to them about that? Because I know you reference um, higher powers, God, spirit. I mean, you just you lay it out there in all sorts of different ways. Yeah, I do. I do. Um, and again, I think I think it's a, a great question. And I think, you know, language is so important, Carol, and how, you know, and when we say things, you know, if, I usually, I remember years ago, I, I used to say, you know, in, in having this conversation about God with folks, you know, if I were to bring, say, 10 Methodists into a room with me, and I asked each person who goes to the same church even, can you tell me, ex- describe for me what the God of your understanding looks like? Now, they're all Methodists, and they all go to church on Sundays. And they're all going to have a very different answer. And so the, uh-huh. the, the, uh-huh. The, the point in that is that, you know, our spirituality is truly, it is as unique as our DNA. Okay? So, so we, have, may, we may have some common uh, things, you know, in terms of how our spirituality is expressed, right, through different rituals, you know, things like that, which are very beautiful and helpful and, and really help to, to put some um, teeth in our faith, if you will. Um, but, yes, I, I use language, whether it's, you know, God, higher power, the divine, um, um, the life force, um, universe. Uh, I, I use all of those words rather synonymously. Now, depending on the person I'm, I'm working with, if I, if I know somebody is a Christian and they're very familiar with, you know, Jesus and, you know, that languaging like that, I'm, I'm very comfortable with that as well, too. Um, uh, so, but let, let's go back to the, you know, regarding the um, people going into a 12-step program and, and having some, maybe having some um, difficulty with, um, with that. So, you know, many, many times uh, people who enter a 12-step fellowship or, or, or maybe some that are trying to develop some kind of a sobriety protection plan, they don't have much of a relationship with God. Even, you know, the idea of God or higher power, it's, it's, they, they, don't even have, they can't even begin a relationship because they don't even have an understanding, right? Is that, and how, how can you have a relationship mm-hmm. with something you don't even understand, right? And, and right. many are struggling, my experience is many are struggling with choking shame and guilt maybe around their behaviors and for some maybe, maybe they've never had a, any kind of experience or a grounding in a, some kind of a faith tradition to even have an understanding of what God um, is. Um, for many, their understanding of God or higher power is oftentimes rather immature. Um, you know, sometimes you'll get people who consider themselves spiritual but not religious. And, and But upon further examination and when I'm talking to them, what they, what they describe is not a relational spirituality. Rather, it's more of an ambiguous description that often lacks any kind of depth or connection. And it doesn't, you know, this spiritual but not religious, it doesn't provide them with any kind of spiritual sustenance, right? Or, yeah, um, that absolutely I, 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 makes sense, right. 
Right. I, I remember years ago, um, somebody somebody asked me, you know, where I was going, and it, and I said, well, I'm going for some soul food, and they and they they thought I was, you know, like, oh, is there a new restaurant in town? And I was like, no, <laughs> I'm going to be spiritually fed. I mean, that's um, that's you know, to me, that's how I that's how I um, think about that. So, um, you know. Part, what I what I would say to people is somebody who is trying to um, you can't have a relationship until you even have an understanding right of of what God or higher power is, and so you know there are some uh, tips and tools that I uh, recommend to people to be kind of it, you, to begin the process of getting to to know God or to understand God. And, you know, think of that much like, you know, if you, if you meet somebody new and you want to get to know that person, how do you do that? What's, what's the most me. obvious way? Yeah, I'm yeah. asking you, Carol. Um, if, if you, you want some, to if meet, you meet somebody, somebody and you want yeah, to get to know that person, what do you have to do to get to know that person? You have to kind of introduce yourself to them and listen and hear what they have to say and just check for comparisons and things that, that automatically bond you to that person. Right. And even before that, you have to spend some time with them, don't you? Absolutely. You've got to commit the time to spend with that other person, right? So, so part of what I start with, folks, is, you know, assessing, you know, all right, you, you know, you, you, you're saying you want to, you know, kind of get to know God if you will, or the divine or higher power. Um, maybe, maybe your, your image of God is, is from, you know, when you were a child and this, you know, grandfatherly figure with the long flowing white hair and the robes and, you know, and maybe that was a very loving figure for you. And maybe it was not so loving for you. Maybe it was very punitive and, and frightening even, you know? Um, so, so the idea of having to spend time and committing time to, being open to how God will reveal God's self, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so, you know, this, you know, we, we talk about, and in, in, uh, I love the, you know, the 11th step in Alcoholics Anonymous is, you know, I don't know if it ever said, I don't think it ever said that we can't have favorites, <laughs> but I do have a favorite, and mine, and mine, mine is the 11th step. And it says the 11th step is sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of God's will for us and the power to carry that out. So, so I, I really break this down for people because does it say what we're supposed to pray or how we're supposed to pray and meditate? No. It just simply says sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him. And, you know, for a lot of people, I will ask the question, so who do you need God to be for you? If you grew up in a, a, a faith tradition or in a church where God was a very punitive and, and um um, a, a very frightening kind of relationship and, and a very fear-based kind of relationship. Um, I ask the question, does it st- how, how does that serve you to have that kind of fear-based relationship with God today? And, and, you know, in my experience, most people are like, well, I don't want to be afraid of God in that relational sense. 
You know what I'm saying? And, and Absolutely. So, and, you know, you do have some unusual concepts and some things that I don't believe that our listeners have ever heard. So can I ask you a couple of questions? Because you are a spiritual director, and you, this is definitely your niche, and, and mm-hmm. I want you to talk about liminal space and what that means uh-huh. to yeah. spirituality oh, and for our listeners. Yeah. Well, I love this notion of liminal space. Um, I, I did a, a, a presentation a couple weeks ago um, to a bunch of um, therapists that treat sex addicts and partners. And, um, and it was this very presentation on increasing one's conscious contact with God. And um, I began with this um, um, explanation of what liminal space is. And if you can imagine, if you will, I'm very visual. I don't know about you, Carol, but I'm very visual. If you can imagine, you know, have you ever been to like the circus and you, you see the, the trapeze artists, right, and how they, mm-hmm. a trapeze artist, they literally, they go from one ring, they let go, and they're kind of that, that free-falling to where they're trying to catch that next ring, right? That space between those two places is the best visual that I can come up with for liminal space. And it's, it's, and it's one of the best places where we can really get in touch with God. Liminal space is defined as that inner state, and sometimes it's an outer situation, where we can actually begin to think and act in genuinely new ways. It's, it's, we're in the midst of things. We're having left one way of life, but not entirely in the other. I'll tell you, liminal space oftentimes is a very painful time of our life. We often enter liminal space when our former way of life has completely changed. When you lose a job or a loved one during illness, um, discovery, you know, disclosure, the ending of a relationship. It's during this time of liminal space that you realize you're not in control. As much as you thought you had your life, I'm saying this parenthetically, together, right, you realize that you're not in control. And it's when we're in this liminal space that we have the opportunity for something genuinely new to happen. Those of us who are in the addiction field recognize that our clients uh, may continue to cling to their old patterns of behavior in some kind of a furtive attempt to reclaim their lives as they knew it. And, and the thing is, that's part of that letting go of, you know, what that over, it's so overused. I don't like it, but, you know, creating that new normal, but, 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 but it really is that it's, it's life as we knew it is over and we're not in that, not fully acclimated into that new space. Um, but it is that it is in that space that if people can uh, adopt a, uh, a curiosity I, I, I love the idea of being, I, I suggest to people, being intentionally inquisitive. I absolutely love those two words together. Intentionally inquisitive. How is God speaking and communicating with you today? Liminal space is that place where we are the most teachable. It's when we are empty and when we are more receptive. It is nonsensical. It's, 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 it's like we break out of this, you know, uh, Richard Rohr would call it this, like this uh, comfortable sleepwalk of our compulsive, 
cultural trance, you know, that this idea of how we've always done things, you know, and on Tuesday nights we have meatloaf and the kids have got soccer practice on, you know, Thursdays after school. And it's, it's this liminal space. It's when it's not a, a, a time of not doing and not performing our usual patterns. It's, it's, it's a place of where we need to fail fast and deliberately falter in order to understand these other dimensions, this other next place of where our life is going to take us. But, you know, I tell people, Carol, every day, notice, notice, notice. I believe, and, and you know, um, and if I'm wrong, well, I'd, I'd rather be wrong about this um, because I don't know any other way to believe. But I believe that, there, you know, for all of us, we there is this, ultimate beautiful and i say this word in a positive way conspiracy with god who is constantly supporting us and constantly um helping us course correct um and it's our job to notice i mean have you ever had the experience carol where you've had three different people tell you about a book you need to read oh absolutely 100 percent Right, and, and, and so, but did you buy the book the first time? No, I don't. I don't buy it the second time. By the time I hear it the third time, I'm on Amazon. I'm getting that book because that is my belief. That is a way because that is how God communicates with us is through other people and through nature and through events and circumstances in the rooms of 12-step recovery through other people's experience, strength, and hope. That is how God communicates with us. And so liminal space, as, as uncomfortable as it is, it is that very time in our life when we can be open to learning and to new experiences. It's, it's doing things like taking silence instead of talking. It's like experiencing emptiness and noticing what that feels like instead of fullness. It's about being in a place of like anonymity instead of persona of penniless instead of, instead of plenty and, and noticing these experiences. The challenge is, and I think what makes it scary for most people when they're in liminal space is they're afraid they're going to get stuck there. <laughs> you know, uh-huh, exactly. That right, that it's going to last forever. And what I try to explain to them is liminal space is, a, is an acute time in a person's life when they are moving from you know, life as they knew it to this new normal, if you will. It's a very painful time. Well, and that time. really speaks to both sex addicts and partners because that's Absolutely. obviously where they're going and what they're doing. Now, let me ask mm-hmm. you because so many addicts and partners feel betrayed by God. They feel like, why have I been given this compulsion or why would I be married to somebody who has been unfaithful to me my entire life? So mm-hmm. what is one of the simplest ways that you can explain that to them? Well, um, you know, I think that's interesting because, um, and true, I've heard that before. It's like, you know, why me? Why did I, you know, why did I get this? You know, um, I ask people you know, when, when they say that, I, I kind of, the reframe is to, to kind of get them to look at and examine. And I asked them, honestly, I said, you know, be honest with me and be honest with yourself. How 
grateful were you for life as you had it before you found yourself in this situation? And most people will say, well, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for my children. And I'm like, okay, but, but I mean, grateful for the air that you breathe. And, you know, I, I think oftentimes people want to blame God when things go bad, but we oftentimes forget to thank God when things are going well. And, um, you know, uh, it's like, you know, I don't have an answer for, you know, why does God give, you know, children cancer? Why does God take our loved ones from us when, you know, why, why? I don't have all the answers for, you know, why, the why. I, I, to me, I see those as very futile. And um, I don't see it as um, God giving it to us, <laughs> you know, Um I really don't. I I see it as, you know, we come into this earth and, you know, we have, I'm very, I use my hands a lot, Carol, because that's, I'm not Italian, but I talk with my hands. But I think about these different periods and times in our life when, you know, um, when we've had um, experiences of heartache or uh, deep sorrow or trauma. And, um, you know, for most people, you know, there are, there's silver linings in that. Do people always see the silver lining? Not usually, no. When we're in it, no. It's very difficult to see the silver lining, to see the lesson, to see the understanding. But I can tell you, having worked with enough people, enough partners, enough sex addicts who have gotten recovery, who have done the work, and I mean, I'm talking some um, really, like you've said, some very, very painful uh, situations. But, you know, when you have a committed partner and addict committing to doing the work, and and it is work. It is it is not like you know just you know a, a rump in the seat or you know kind of um, a, a nod to doing it, but actually doing the work. The uh, transformation of a person's whole sense of being um, is so beautiful to witness, and the healing and the miracles that happen. And honestly, when I hear somebody who you know when they first come in and then several years down the road doing their recovering and their partners, you know, doing their recovery as well. And actually, and they say things like, Oh my God, I'm so grateful this happened. I knew, I never thought I'd say that, but I'm so grateful. Yeah, I get that too. And I, I'm very careful about pointing that kind of thing out at all, because until they have that experience, that aha moment, that can right. actually be very offensive. But when they do come to that decision that wow they are stronger they have grown uh-huh. much more they're they have more compassion to give to others um, right. boy that is a real turnaround experience and, and i wanted to ask you before we end for tonight you are a spiritual director so what do you think are some of the simplest ways to increase conscious contact with god i mean so many of my clients say i want to be closer to god my higher power, I'm just not sure how. I don't know how to let go and let that happen. Mm-hmm. Well, again, it's, it's, a, it's, a great, it's a great question. And, and, and truly, I mean, it begins with that, the seeker, you know, that, that person who is seeking. I want to be able to do that. So uh, I would say probably the simplest, simplest way is to begin a spiritual practice that can be practiced daily and it's by using a mantra. I don't know if, if your uh, listeners are familiar with that term. 
Um, a mantra is a Sanskrit that literally means an instrument of thought. It's a sacred expression, a sound, a syllable, a word, or a group of words. You know, and, and I never, ever, ever tell somebody what their mantra is. I would instruct them and say, you know, take that to God. I mean, and ask God, what would be, what would be a, a, a good mantra for me? Something that has meaning, that's unique, and it's simple, and it's stated silently to ourselves, and it, it, we use the mantra to help connect with the divine, um, with God or higher power. So some examples, um, some, some folks that I work with that are, um, you know, uh, Christian, um, the Jesus prayer. And it's just, that is just simply saying Jesus, 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 repeating it three times, taking a pause, and then repeating that again. Um, uh, other examples, uh, may all beings be at ease. Um, love and light. Uh, some people like the uh, Om Shanti Shanti Shanti, which simply means Om Peace, Peace, Peace. Um, I, I love that. Um, Be still and know that I am God. I don't know if your uh, listeners um, know that one. Which oh, I love that one. And the idea is that you you say the entire Be still and know that I am God, and then you wait a moment, and then you say Be still and know that I am. And wait another minute. Be still and know. Be still. Be. And these, doing these kinds of uh, simple, reflect. Again, this is the part of the spending time with God piece. You know, the very beginning, kind of getting to know God, and offering uh-huh. a prayer like that, offering a mantra like that, and then being. Still, not rushing off, but being still, and then that's where the meditation piece comes in. And so, so the difference really between prayer and meditation is one is speaking, whether out loud or to oneself, and the other is simply listening. That's what meditation is: is just really listening, listening. And and that is so true. And and that it's listening, being still, which I really believe reflects back into getting comfortable with just being in general. You know, not doing, no being. Just, the, that's the idea, Carol, yeah. Um, one, one last thing, um, there are these uh, disciplines of abstinence, and these are ways are of denying ourselves something that we want or need in order to make, main, make space and focus on or connect with God. Solitude, being very intentional about solitude refraining from interacting with other people in order to be alone with God and to be found by God. Um, Taking silence. I said this last week and everybody was like, what? What does it mean to take silence? Taking silence is very intentionally not speaking in a quiet place in order to quiet our minds and our whole self and to attend to God's presence. Also not speaking so that we can listen to others. Um, Fasting. And it doesn't have to be just food. You know, fasting can, can be um, um, anything else, going with, you know, out other things. And it can be partial or it can be complete. Um, this is another one that I, I really like, and I, I shared a story with people. Um, I don't like the, the word secrecy, but it is this idea, but it's, this is in a good way. It's not making our good deeds known or our qualities known. Secrets. Secrecy, in this respect, is doing good things for others without drawing attention to yourself or talking about it. 
Well, I that makes sense as a biblical principle, and yeah, cer- it certainly um, increases your own sense of self worth without that external validation. It feels good, exactly. and you feel good about yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you know, and and a lot of people have a problem with the word discipline, spiritual disciplines, and I I I, I believe that discipline is doing what you know needs to be done even when you don't want to do it. It's not a bad thing. It's, it's, it's something that's Marie, it's we could be for. talking for days, but unfortunately <laughs> we have to end. Is there one okay. last message that you would like to give to our listening audience about spirituality, and then how can they contact you if they want to find out more about your services? Um, okay, well, I guess my, my uh, last thought about spirituality, connecting, you know, improving your conscious contact with God. Remember this. Authentic spirituality is not about getting or attaining or achieving or performing or succeeding because all of these tend to pander to the ego. Authentic spirituality is more about letting go, letting go of what we don't need anyway although we don't know that ahead of time. It's more like the shedding of thoughts rather than piling on more thoughts. Um, If people want to get in touch with me, so my telephone number is 469-212-9897. You can go to my website and um, learn more about me and what I do and um, uh, services that I provide. Uh, through my website, which is just my name. It's Marie Krebs, K-R-E-B-S, consulting.com. And I really thank thank you, Carolyn. Thank you so much, Marie. There are not enough people in the world that know how to discuss spirituality like you do, and I so appreciate you sharing your views with our listening audience. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Carol. Absolutely. You take care. Okay. Good night. All right, so another fascinating night with um, spiritualist, spiritual director, Marie Krebs. I'm Carol Jurgensen-Sheets, a.k.a. Carol the Coach, and I so appreciate you listening. If you have any questions, I've changed my email, and it is carol at carolthecoach.com, as well as you can always go to my website, Sex Help with Carol the Coach, And look at those YouTube uh, channels so that you can get some help, whether you're a partner or a sex addict. You can go to Sex Health with Carol the Coach on YouTube and get 10 to 15-minute videos that are enlightening and will help guide you. Um, I kind of feel like it is going to church. You know, when you go to church and you say, my gosh, the pastor was talking directly to me. Well, that's what I believe happens. When you seek help, help seeks you. And last but not least, I am begging you, I tell you this every week, to buy my Sexual Addiction Wisdom from the Master's book. It is a compilation of people that I have interviewed throughout the years. I got Patrick Carnes, Claudia Black, Alex Katahakis, Barbara Steffens, um, just some really really uh, important people that have a lot of information to share. 
And so you can go to my website, Sex Help with Carol the Coach, and order that book, or you can go to Amazon and get the ebook. Um, it is available through Amazon.com. Every bit of money we generate goes to um, AFAR, which is the Sexual Addiction Research Group, so that they can turn that around and put more research into that. So I thank you, and I look forward to talking with you next week when I interview Connie Spiegel, who is um, a uh, partner trauma specialist and has a lot of information about sexual addiction. So as I say at the end of every show, I want you to fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. And we'll catch you back here at 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time for more sex help with Carol the Coach. Have a great week.